please get back to your seats now. I, I did prepare hard for this sermon. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs> but it, Taylor's story is worth hearing, so please find, seek him out, and ask him about his time in Senegal and France, because it's totally worth it. Um, and, uh, let's turn together to Mark 1, 1 to 15. Mark chapter 1, 1 to 15. I'll read it out loud for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, no amount of human intelligence or insight can do justice to your gospel. God, as I speak, let human ingenuity fade away. Let your word stand true. Won't you, yourself, through your Holy Spirit, captivate our hearts? Lord, you said in your word, God, in Romans 11.33, that your judgments are unsearchable and your ways are inscrutable. God, there's infinite depths to your gospel. So there's some of us, Lord, who understand the gospel here, but there's also some here that do not understand the gospel. But I pray this morning that all of us will be struck anew by the wonder of the gospel this morning. Won't you transform us, please? Speak to us, Father. We need you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys watch the news, but a lot of dire things happening this week. Right? We, 
I wonder sometimes, look at these things. Is there hope for the world? Is there hope for this world? Because people struggle with psychological alienation within themselves, right? They are not comfortable with themselves. They struggle with fear and anxiety and depression. And just this week, the son of the renowned evangelical pastor, Rick Warren, Matt Warren, committed suicide as a 27-year-old after decades, after decade-long struggle with, with depression. I see that and I ask, is there hope for this world? There's so much psychological brokenness. And it's not just psychological brokenness and alienation. There's also social alienation and brokenness in our world. We look at it, we look at the news, and North Korea is talking about how they're going to go to war. They're going to send a missile. We hear of wars and rumors of wars wherever we turn. Not only that, we see the horrible case of the Gosnell trials. I don't know if you guys have seen the news of that this week a man who is being tried for murdering a whole bunch of babies. After abortion failed and they were born as live babies, he would kill them. And he's on trial for that, for a trial for murder right now. Not only that, he also killed, some, killed a woman in, in that same process. And I see that and I ask, is there hope for this world? There's so much brokenness, psychological and social brokenness and alienation. I ask, is there hope for this world? I see not just that, also physical brokenness and alienation. So many loved ones dying of cancer, even as we pray this morning. Sick, physical brokenness, ALS. Is there hope for this world? All of these things, psychological, social, physical alienation and brokenness, is all rooted in one thing, and that's our spiritual alienation and brokenness. That's our spiritual alienation from God. Our vertical alienation from God is what causes all these horizontal alienations with the rest of the world. So is there hope for this world? And I believe there is. And what is that hope? That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? And we started the, the gospel of Mark last week, and that's, this could be confusing for some of you, so I'll just explain briefly. Gospel with the capital G refers to the book of the gospel. Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first four books of the Christian New Testament. That's a gospel. But the small g gospel refers to a good news. That's what it means. And it's a good news of Jesus Christ, of what he has done for us and about who he is. That's what the gospel is, and I will explain further as we go. And we started this, looking at this last week, and this passage is right at the beginning of chapter 1 of Mark. And we know that this book is about the small g gospel, the good news of Christ, because he begins right in the, in the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he also ends this section, this passage, with the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is, this is a way, to, by beginning and ending with this, he's saying that this whole section of this passage, it's going to be about the gospel. And because this section is an introduction or a prologue to the rest of the book, this whole thing is going to be about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's that important. And this alone is the hope for our world. This is an extremely important topic, no matter how many times you have heard it, no matter how well you think you know it. The gospel can transform us. So what is the good news? What is the good news for? As I've mentioned in the past, the good news was not a term that the gospel writers made up. It was something that was already in, in, used by people in that time. So in the Roman Empire, in the 9th century BC, there was a Greek inscription that was written about Caesar Augustus. It says, on his birthday, 
that his birthday began for the world, the announcement of good news that have gone forth because of him. So the rise of kings to the throne, the rise of emperors, that was considered good news, especially if they were good for the empire or the, or the country, or however you want to think of it. So that was good news. It's a rise of kings. And this inscription is significant because it talks about the beginning of the good news, just like Mark says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is this rival ideologies. So rise of a king. This, here's a rise of another king. And why is it significant? So this is about a rise of a king, and Jesus indeed is a king, but this is not the only background that the people that are reading this would see because there's also the Old Testament background about the good news. I think I have um, some of that to project up there. But if you look at verses 2 to 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, that just means before you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this quotation, even though Mark says it's from Isaiah the prophet, some of it is from Isaiah the prophet, but it's a composite quotation one part of it, first part, behold, I send my messenger before your face, comes from Exodus 23, 20. Second part, who will prepare your way, comes from Malachi 3, 1. And the last part, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, comes from Isaiah 43. And the reason why he mentions Isaiah is because it's the most prominent and eloquent prophetic book that talks and predicts the arrival of the Messiah, the coming king. This is about the coming king, and this is Jesus and so what is this good news? In Isaiah 49 to 10, it says this. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him, and his recompense before him. So this is about God's rule, not just about any king, but God's rule, that he is king. He's the victorious king over the universe that's going to defeat the enemies of his people and to redeem them from oppression. And the similar sentiment is also expressed in Isaiah 52, 7. Where it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So what is the good news? If I can summarize it from the Old Testament background is your God reigns. Your God is not subjected to anything. He reigns. He is the victorious king. Jesus is the victorious king. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And so he's saying he brings the news of peace and of happiness and salvation. That's good news. That's good news for us. And because he's king, and because Jesus is king, that's why someone has to prepare the way for him beforehand, right? So why does, what's going on in verse 2 to 3? It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Why does, he, why does someone have to go before him? Because kings need a kingly reception. And if kings go with unannounced and they come in a place and they're not ready to receive a king, then that's not, not appropriate for a king. Because kings need a kingly reception. So kings always have heralds go beforehand. They say, a king is coming, and then everybody shuffles around to get the place ready, fitting for a king. Then the king comes in all his glory and is received. 
welcomed appropriately. That's what's going on. So somebody has to go beforehand because Jesus is a king. And heralds announce that. And that's why in verse 4, it says John appeared. John is the herald. He's the, past, he's the going before him. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. This proclaiming is a word that comes from the word for herald. So this is exactly what, who John is. That's what he's doing. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And uh, that's actually what the word preaching comes from as well. To herald, to proclaim. So that's all we are. When we stand up here to preach, we're heralding the coming of the king. We proclaim authoritatively the gospel that was declared once and for all by Jesus Christ. And we're proclaiming, we're, we're preparing you for the coming of the, sec- coming of the king, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all we are. And I think, and I, that's how I think of it. I appreciate songs like, um, I, have you guys heard of um, Thank You for Giving to the Lord? You guys know that song? I think a lot of people know. <laughs> it's a pretty cheesy song, but it's about basically how you go to heaven and basically there's people there who are thanking you for giving because you gave to God and you served God and because they knew you. It's sentimental, and I really, I, I, I probably listening to that song, to be honest, because <laughs> it's very good and it's, it's moving, but I don't think that's the way it's going to be because we're just heralds. I think we're going to be blissfully forgotten in the glory of God when we go. I think we behold God and we were in that, but it's not going to be people coming up to us and thanking God and we see him and the people, the bride of Christ, the church coming to meet the bride and our joy is going to be complete. We're gonna, not going to need people coming up and saying, oh, thank you for lining up. That's not what I see. This is going to be so much more glorious than that. So we're just heralds and John the Baptist is just a herald. He comes, he says, the king is coming. Get ready. And so what kind of a king is he? What kind of a work is he going to do? How is he going to be victorious? We can figure all this out by looking at John the Baptist because he's the herald of the king. And if you look at the nature of John's preparing work, we see that he is uh, a type or a representative figure. And a type, he's a type of one, he's a type of Moses. So if you're taking notes, these are three things that you probably want to take down. And he's secondly, he's a type of Elijah. And then third, he's a type of Adam. Okay, and I'm going to prove this from the text. First, he's a type of Elijah and, um, or, or Moses. Let me talk about that first. And the reason why we know that is because in verse 5 it says, if you look with me, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, Jordan obviously is a significant location because that's the coming, of the, coming to the promised land. That's you have to go by the Jordan. So that's, that location is already a clue. But the expression going out is actually the word. It's, it's the term that's used to describe the exodus. It's a going out. Exodus is sometimes simply called going out or when you came out. That's how the exodus is referred to throughout the Bible. So we know that this is kind of a second exodus. He's, this John the Baptist is leading his people. He's, he's kind of a second Moses preparing them to go. And this is significant also because in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Apostle Paul sees Moses leading the people of Israel through the Red Sea as a sort of baptism. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that's kind of a baptism going through the Red Sea, and obviously John the Baptist, he's not denominationally Baptist, he's baptizing that's why he's called a Baptist. He's baptizing people. So this, all these things give us clues that this is, he's supposed to represent a Moses-like figure. He's preparing people for the Exodus. He's leading people in the Exodus. So that's the first clue. 
Now, second, he's a type of Elijah. He's a representative figure of Elijah. And why is that? Because in Malachi 4.5, it's it's prophesied, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Elijah didn't come back, Elijah from the Old Testament, but someone like Elijah did come back, and that was John the Baptist. That's why later in Mark 9, 11, 13, Jesus says this explicitly, that Elijah does come first to restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. That is written him. He's talking about John the Baptist. So he's, and that's the reason why, if you were wondering, like when you read this passage, you go through verse 5 and 6. If you get to verse 6, it says, Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's not the usual way you would introduce somebody, right? You say, you come, it's like, oh, he was born of this person or he lived in this place, right? Kind of, you usually give an introduction. You don't talk about someone's attire, usually, when you try and introduce them, especially when it's not something so unimpressive like, you know, a leather and <laughs> camel's hair, right? So you wonder what's going on here, and the reason is because that's the attire of prophets. And more specifically, that's how prophet Elijah is described in the Bible. 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah is described as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Just as John was clothed with camel's hair, wears a leather belt around his waist in verse 6. In the same way, Elijah was associated with the wilderness, the desert. It's at 1 Kings 17.3. I'm sorry that that's not all up there. I didn't have to... <laughs> I'm happy to give that to you guys after the sermon. Um, and the Jordan, he's also associated with the Jordan and preached the message of repentance, just as John's doing. John's doing all that. He's associated with the Jordan, associated with repentance, associated with the wilderness. So John, just like Elijah, is a type. He's a type of Elijah. And what did Elijah do? Elijah wanted to bring revival throughout the nation of Israel. That's what he was trying to do. And John then is in the same way doing that. He's preparing Israel for revelation. Uh, for, for revival, for the arrival of the king. Um, and, the last, and lastly, this is the hyperbolic expression in verse 4. It says, all the country of Judea and all Judea were going out to John the Baptist. It says that. Really? All Judea and all Samaria? You think they all came to John the Baptist? What's the point? Why are you saying, does he have a problem with exaggerating his stories? No, I don't think that's what's going on. That's a hyperbolic expression. But there's a reason why he says that. Because in 1 Kings 18.21, it says, All the people drew near to Elijah. And Elijah said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. All the people came out to Elijah to hear him, to call them to repentance to God. So why is he saying all the people from Judea came out? Because he's a type of Elijah. He's a type of Moses. He's a type of Elijah. So those two things this, this, this man represents. And finally, he also represents an Adam. The Adam, the first man that God created. But not just any Adam, but the fallen Adam. Because if you remember when Adam fell and he saw his nakedness, he had to be clothed. And God clothed him with what? Animal skin. And that's exactly what John's wearing. So then he's calling people to repentance, and the animal skin is also a sign of repentance because it's uncomfortable. That's why for millennia, ascetics and monks, they wear leathers like, and hairs because it's uncomfortable. It's a sign of repentance. 
So John the Baptist is doing that. He's wearing on himself the sign of repentance and at the same time serving as a visual reminder of the fallenness of humanity. You fell, you sinned. That's why I wear this because that's what God clothed Adam with when he fell, when he sinned. So in this way, these, there's three really visual kind of these reminders. It's just it's so rich, this text is, when you, look, when you read through it. So he's first a type of Moses, second a type of Elijah, third a type of Adam. But we realize very quickly as you keep going that this passage is actually not about John the Baptist at all, right? Because starting in verse 7, the whole weight and emphasis of this whole passage shifts to Jesus, even grammatically speaking, if John the Baptist was a subject up to this point on, but now everything, Jesus is a subject. John is no longer baptizing. It's Jesus that's getting baptized. The focus, the whole attention shifts to Jesus. It's all about him after verse 7. And this is almost kind of incidental. In verse 14, it says that now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Did you guys read that and was surprised? Wait, John was arrested? John was, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? This guy, like, John was arrested, and you just kind of mentioned that offhandedly, like, you're just in passing, because John's, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not about John. He's just the herald. It's not about John. It's about Jesus, and the focus is sh- shifting to Jesus, starting verse 7 on. And I think this is, uh, this is probably going to be, I have a theory about this, but if you look at some of the um, popular TV shows where um, a lot of, there's really charismatic um, he- heroes, um, their initials are all J.B., like James Bond, right? Jack Bauer, um, Jason Bourne, right? And I think that's kind of an artist, artist that script, I guess, artists, they're, they're paying homage to this fact because they all fall short of J.C., Jesus Christ, <laughs> and it's like John the Baptist, John the Baptist is JB too, right? <laughs> and, uh, but in all seriousness though, all, in all seriousness though, this is happening in a way, because John the Baptist, like Moses, Elijah, and Adam, he, he represents really important figures in the biblical narrative. Moses, Elijah, they're all really important people, but they all have one notable commonality. They all have one thing in common, that's that they all fail. Moses fails. Elijah fails. Adam fails. Let me tell you what happened. Moses was obviously used greatly by God in the Exodus. But in one occasion, in, he speaks and acts rashly and fails to honor God. And because of that, we see in Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 6, after following God's call and leading the Israelites for most of his life, he does not get to enter the promised land. He leads the people to the very edge of the promised land, and then he needs to pass it on to Joshua. And he goes up Mount Nebo, and he dies in Moab, in a pagan nation. How sad is that? It's a ministry of disappointment. He doesn't make it. He doesn't get to take the Israelites into the promised land. And that's why Jesus is named Jesus. Because the same name, variation of Joshua. Moses was not able to complete it, but Jesus will. He will 
take his people into the promised land. So if Moses, is, if, if John the Baptist is a type of Moses, then Jesus is a type of Joshua here. Joshua-like person. And that's why in the same way, Jesus goes later and, and he says he's tempted by 40 days in the wilderness, just as Moses was tempted for 40 years with his people in the wilderness. Jesus completes what Moses was unable to do. Same thing with Elijah. Elijah, his ministry ended in bitter disappointment. He had that triumphant moment when all Israel came to him and he says, why are you limping between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. And then he says, people that are for the Lord come to me and we're going to slaughter all these prophets of Baal and inflict God's judgment on them. And they do. They have a triumphant victory. And he's elated, obviously. This is what his life was leading up to. He thinks, I have finally done it. There's going to be revival. And people are going to come back to the Lord. And he's so excited, he goes to Jazreel, the capital, to witness this for himself. And then guess what? Instead of a triumphant revival, he gets a death threat from Jezebel, the queen. And he's so scared out of his mind, he goes and flees into the wilderness. And he goes up on a mountain, Mount Horeb, for 40 days. And Jesus, again, he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Elijah was not able to complete it. And in, during those 40 days, he's instructed to pass on his torch to Elisha, his successor. And this is significant because this happens in the Jordan. Just like this passage is happening in the Jordan. The John the Baptist. Get to John the Baptist. Uh, and when they're at the Jordan, this is what Elijah tells him. You know that the Lord is about to take me. So Elijah, my successor, is there anything you want from me? And Elijah says, yes, um, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And then Elijah says, this is kind of hard, but if you see me get taken up by God, then yes, that will be granted to you. And he does see him taken by God. And he receives a double portion. And we know this because if you look at the narratives throughout First Kings and Second Kings, Elisha has twice as many prophecies as Elijah. He has twice as many miracles as Elijah. It's, it's intentional because it's showing that he received a double portion. So what happens? So in the Jordan, in this Jordan, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus John the Baptist is not going to be able to bring these people to repentance. He's proclaiming repentance, but how is there forgiveness of sin apart from atonement? Christ has to die for our sins. There has to be atonement before we, there can be repentance and faith. So John the Baptist can't lead those people there. He's not going to make it. Elijah did not make it. He did not see this revival. But what he did not finish, Jesus will. He will accomplish it. So he's a type. Jesus fulfills what Elijah and Moses could not fulfill. That's why finally it, it's Elisha, Elijah's successor, that orchestrates the overthrow of the house of Ahab, Ahab that was instrumental in causing all the idolatry in, in Israel. And that's what Jesus will do. He'll be victorious. He'll be the victorious king. And third, Adam. Adam obviously failed, right? He sinned. That's why he had the leather, uh, leather cloth, the skin of animals. And when Jesus is in the wilderness and he passes the test, unlike Adam, 
It says, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. What is that about? Because this is not mentioned in Matthew, which we looked at for the temptation passage. The reason why Mark includes that detail is because he wants us to see that Jesus is the second, better, new Adam. He does what Adam could not accomplish, and he reverses the trajectory that creation has been on since the fall, going down, away from God. He reverses that. Now it's going to be a new creation, getting restored to the first pristine state where animals live in harmony with humans. That's predicted in Isaiah 11 to 6, 9. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what Jesus will accomplish. So this is not about John the Baptist at all, this whole passage. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. He's going to fulfill what all these guys that you have hoped for were not able to fulfill. And that's why it's so beautiful. There's only one, I guess I'll mention this. Now, there's only one uh, other occasion in this whole gospel of Mark where the phrase, you are my beloved son, that, that occurs, where God speaks from heaven and looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. That's, that's in the transfiguration. And isn't it interesting that at the transfiguration, who stands next to Jesus? Elijah and Moses. And then the disciples are so excited, they look at him and they go, oh, let's make three shrines. Let's make shrines for each of them so we could stand here. And then it says in the Gospel of Mark, suddenly they disappear. There was only Jesus. I think that statement is so poetically beautiful. All these things that you have hoped for, the law, the prophets, the history, all these things that you have hoped for, that's not what's going to get you to heaven. That's not what's going to get you redeemed. These people failed. Only Jesus. Who are you looking to for your salvation? Are you looking to save yourself by being righteous, by raising up a good family, by living according to the standards that you have set for yourself or you believe that God has set in your Bible? How are you trying to save yourself? Because only Jesus can save. Are you looking at something else, Jesus and career? Jesus and money? Jesus and a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, wife? Jesus and something? No, Jesus only. Are you looking to Jesus only? Because all of these things have failed. There's nothing that can succeed apart from Christ for your salvation, for our redemption. And that's because Jesus is the Son of God. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? A lot of people say that Mark is, is pe people that are skeptics, if you talk to a lot of atheists, I have a whole bunch of atheist friends, I talk to them, and they tell me, you know, this is all made up about Jesus being being the son of God, you know, you don't find, you only find that in the Gospel of John, which, is, which was composed a generation after Jesus' time. You can't find that in the Gospel of Mark, which, was the, which is the oldest gospel. Look at it. Study it. In the beginning, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. That from Isaiah 43, that refers to Lord, Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's the name of the God of Israel. And it says at the end of this passage, prepare the way. Who is he preparing the way for? For Jesus, Jesus is the Lord. He is the God, preparing God's gospel. It says in verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God. 
Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God, and in, in the beginning, verse 1, it says, gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus' gospel, and the gospel is God's gospel. Jesus is God. And when you look at it right here, it's so beautifully captured in that one scene. Jesus is being baptized, and the Spirit comes down on him like a dove. And the Father declares his pleasure over the Son. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is really cool. The translation says, I am well pleased. But it's actually, I was well pleased, is what it says. It's a past tense. And why is that significant? Because it's not just that he came to this baptism and then saw Jesus and decided, yes, I am pleased with him. He decided from time immemorial, before the foundations of the world, that he was pleased with Jesus. And this is what he would do to save humanity. That's why that same word, that same root is used in Ephesians to refer to God's delight in the elect from the foundations of the world. This is, this is how Trinity was supposed to work from the beginning of time. This is how God had envisioned it. So God the Father, this is, uh, and this is again a picture of new creation, of recreation, because in creation what happens? In the beginning, right, God creates the heavens and the earth, but how does that happen? The Spirit was hovering over the waters, and hovering is the word used to describe birds in flight, and here, obviously, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And that, that, by the way, doesn't mean that he looks like a dove or that he's a dove. He's, that's why he says he's like a dove. And like is apostolic, apocalyptic language. And if you look at Revelation all the time, it says it was like that. It was like this. It was like that. Because when you see a heavenly reality, you can't put it into words with what you know. You can't say this is what it is. So you say it's like this. So he's like a dove. He can't explain in his words what the Holy Spirit was like, but he sees him descending like a dove. There's the Holy Spirit, and the Father speaks pleasure over his Son, just like in creation. How does God create? He speaks things into creation, and Jesus obviously is there. And as we know from John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing was created apart from the Word, Jesus. This is an act of new creation. All that brokenness that we talked about in the beginning, the psychological, the social, the physical, all the pain and brokenness you see in the world, that's being reversed right here in this scene. That's how significant and epic this scene is. In the baptism, you see it. God's recreating new creation coming about. This is wonderful, a wonderful, amazing picture. If it doesn't amaze you, I don't know what will. So it's all about Jesus. That's why John says, after he come, after me comes, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Do you believe that? In rabbinic, Jewish rabbinic literature, there's this saying, a pupil does for his teacher all the tasks that a slave does for his master except untying his shoes. That's what disciples were supposed to do for their master. Everything that the slaves do, except untying the shoes, because that was way too demeaning, even for a disciple. And John says, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Is that how you see yourself in your relationship to God? 
Are you relying on Jesus only? Or are you relying on Jesus and something else? There's one final plot twist to this story. Jesus is supposed to be the victorious king. But at the end of the story, he doesn't seem victorious at all. He dies on the cross. Wait, what? Isn't he supposed to be Elisha? He's supposed to defeat the house of Ahab, bring about revival? Isn't he supposed to be Joshua, take the people into the promised land? Isn't he supposed to be the new Adam, bringing about the new creation? What? He dies on the cross? That's the cosmic irony. And when he dies, it says he breathes out his spirit also reminds us of this passage and the curtain of temple is ripped apart it's a very violent word and that ripped apart is the same word used here about the skies the heavens ripping apart and the voice of the father coming out so it reminds me this climactic climactic moment of jesus life baptism new creation is one and the same as the cross and jesus's death how does jesus reign how is jesus victorious he does this by dying He reigns on the cross. He brings us to redemption by dying for our sins, and it is through that he defeats sin and death. The cross is the most beautiful thing we can behold. So how do you respond to that? The time is fulfilled, the last verse, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does it mean to repent and believe in the gospel? I was at Taylor's uh, presentation yesterday, and he was talking about how in Senegal, people, it takes like three years for people to convert. And you know why that is? Because for them to convert in most, mostly Muslim nation where conversion is actually illegal, you're b- giving up your entire identity. You're going to be shunned by your family and your, all your friends. You're going to lose your identity and you have to convert. That's why it takes three years for people to convert. And you know what? That's the same context in the Bible. Repent and believe is not a light thing. Oh, repent and believe. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I'll do that right now. No, it's not that simple. Repent and believe, it means changing your entire identity. Repent means not just a change of mind, but turning around and going in an entire different direction. You're turning to be, to identify with something entirely different from what you have identified with. And to believe, it's not just a mental assent. It means you put your faith in God. It's not just the faith of mental assent saying, oh, I believe that God exists. I believe that Jesus died for me. But trusting that, obeying that, putting your hope in that, all you're putting all your chips into that basket. That's what it means to believe. And have you done that? Have you repented and believed? Because if you have, the questions you ask will not be, okay, what do I want to do next year? What do I want for my life? What do I want to do? The questions will instead be, what does the Lord have me do? What does the Lord want for my life?
church, I really hope that we get that. That's what repentance and belief entails. We saw the pattern of prophetic succession, right? The person that comes after always does something greater. So Elijah does greater things than Elijah, right? Joshua does greater things than Moses. And Jesus does greater things than John the Baptist. And there's one more succession in that line. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will do greater things than I have done. The church succeeds Jesus. The church is supposed to do greater things than what Christ has done in this world. Do you believe that? That only happens if it's a church made up of people who have repented and believed. Who have said, I don't have anything of worth keeping. I have no identity upon myself. I give all of who I am to God and I want to live my life. All of it. My heart, soul, mind, and strength. It all belongs to him. That's how I want to live. That's my Lord and Savior. That's what we have to do. Then we will. The church will do greater things than what Christ has done. So church, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, please do it today. And don't take it lightly because it's not a light decision as I have said. It means committing your whole life to God. Following him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, please come up after the service to pray with some of the leaders at our church to commit your life to God. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I urge you this morning. Let's pray. The worship team can come up as I pray. God, You are so amazing. We are amazed at your gospel. That you, from the beginning of time, have ordained that Christ would die for us. That he would die for our sins. That you would be our Savior and Lord. You knew we would fail. You knew Moses would fail. You knew Elijah would fail. You knew Adam would fail. But you knew your son would succeed. We are so glad. And we worship you. We worship you, Jesus Christ, the son of God, because you are the king, because you are the victorious king. It's because of you that we have salvation. It's because of you that we have joy and the reason to live. God, won't you subdue our rebellious hearts? Don't let a single person in this room leave this place without repenting and believing in you, Lord. Convict our hearts now. Convict us daily to behold you, Jesus only. Jesus only. In your 
holy and precious, precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.